0: By the time Paul wrote his epistle to Roman church members who were a diverse group of Jews and Gentiles, the Church of Jesus Christ had grown far beyond a small band of believers from Galilee. About 20 years after the Savior's resurrection, there were congregations of Christians almost everywhere the apostles could reasonably travel, including Rome, the capital of a powerful empire. Still, compared to the vastness of the Roman Empire, the church was small and often the object of persecution. In such conditions, some might feel ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But of course not Paul. He knew and testified that true power, the power of God unto salvation, is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Hope in Christ, a Come, Follow Me podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Peterson, a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Romans chapters 1 through 6 The Power of God Unto Salvation. In the October 2012 General Conference of the Church, Elder Larry Echohawk of the 70 shared this personal story I volunteered for service in the United States Marine Corps during the Vietnam War. Soon after my arrival in Quantico, Virginia for basic training, I found myself standing at attention in front of my barracks bunk along with 54 other Marine Corps recruits. I met my drill instructor, a battle-hardened veteran, when he kicked open the door to the barracks and entered while screaming words laced with profanity. After this terrifying introduction, he started at one end of the barracks and confronted each recruit with questions. Without exception, the drill instructor methodically found something about each recruit to ridicule with loud vulgar language. Now down the row he came, with each Marine shouting back his answer as commanded, Yes, or no, Sergeant Instructor. I could not see exactly what he was doing, because we had been ordered to stand at attention with our eyes looking straight ahead. When it was my turn, I could tell he grabbed my duffel bag and emptied the contents onto my mattress behind me. He looked through my belongings, then walked back to face me. I braced myself for his attack. In his hand was my Book of Mormon. How would you feel if you were in Elder Echohawk's situation? What do you think the drill instructor was going to do? And have you ever been in situations when you worried that your beliefs were about to be ridiculed? Or maybe they were? What do you do in those type of situations? Paul's letter to the Romans can help us. But before we dive into Romans, let's talk about Paul's epistles or letters that make up most of the rest of the New Testament. We have 14 epistles or letters that were written by Paul found in our present New Testament. They were letters written to members of the church who already had some knowledge of the gospel. Romans is the first epistle that we read in the New Testament, but it's not the first one that Paul wrote. The letters we have in our New Testament today that were written by Paul are not in chronological, geographical, or alphabetical order, but they're in order by length, in descending order, from the longest letter, which is the letter to the Romans, all the way to the book of Philemon. The only exception to this is the epistle to the Hebrews, which was placed at the end because some questioned whether or not it was actually written by Paul. Paul's letter to the Romans was written around the end of his third missionary journey. It was written between the years AD 56 and AD 58. When Paul wrote this letter, he had not yet visited Rome, but he did know a few of the Jewish saints that lived there. Now, to help us understand the book of Romans, it's important to understand what was going on in Rome at the time. There were some tensions taking place between the Gentile saints and the Jewish saints. And Paul is also trying to clear up the misunderstanding that he was somehow denouncing the law of Moses or turning his back on the Jewish saints. And a lot of the Gentile saints at the time were thinking that the Jews were rejected by God because so many of them were rejecting the gospel. And Paul's also trying to clear up that misconception. The book of Romans is really rich in doctrine, but it's often misunderstood. So let's dive into the book of Romans. I started the scripture highlight with a story shared by Elder Larry Echohawk. Now, if you were him, or in a situation like him, and you were standing there waiting for your faith to be completely ridiculed right in front of your face, and maybe you've been in a situation like this before, what would you be feeling or thinking? What do you think Elder Echohawk's drill instructor was about to do? In an increasingly secularized society, faith is under attack constantly. So, what do you do when your beliefs are ridiculed? Paul's letter to the Romans can help us. He began his letter to the Romans by testifying of Christ and expressing his own desire to visit Rome. In verses 15-17, through Paul taught them something powerful about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul then proved that he wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He proved that he wasn't afraid to call out sin as what it was, that it's sin, even if it was politically incorrect or unpopular. At the end of chapter 1 in this letter to the Romans, he listed over a dozen sins that were probably things at the time that were pretty popular to do. If you look at that list Today, a lot of those things have been considered very acceptable or even encouraged in our society. So, what about you and I? Are we ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Or are we not afraid to call sin, sin, even if it's politically incorrect or unpopular to do so? I was driving to our Ward Young Women camp last week where I was asked to share a message about their theme, Rise Up!, On my way to the camp, I heard this talk from General Conference in October 2016 by Sister Bonnie Oscarson, a former Young Women General President. She said, I worry that we live in such an atmosphere of avoiding offense that we sometimes altogether avoid teaching correct principles. We fail to teach our young women that preparing to be a mother is of utmost importance because we don't want to offend those who aren't married or those who can't have children, or to be seen as stifling future choices. On the other hand, we may also fail to emphasize the importance of education because we don't want to send the message that it is more important than marriage. We avoid declaring that our Heavenly Father defines marriage as being between a man and a woman because we don't want to offend those who experience same-sex attraction and we may find it uncomfortable to discuss gender issues or healthy sexuality. Certainly, sisters, we need to use sensitivity, but let us also use our common sense and our understanding of the plan of salvation to be bold and straightforward when it comes to teaching our children and youth the essential gospel principles they must understand to navigate the world in which they live. If we don't teach our children and youth true doctrine and teach it clearly— The world will teach them Satan's lies. I thought that was just fascinating, considering the world that we live in. About seven years after that talk was given, now as we move on through Romans, picture in your mind a man or a woman in a desert. They have no water. They're parched. They're almost completely dehydrated, and about to lose consciousness. When all of a sudden they see in the distance up a steep hill a bottle of water sitting at the top of the hill, and they begin to put all their effort into crawling up this hill toward the bottle of water. Now imagine that you are that man or woman. Which of the following do you think is going to save your life? A. Your belief that the water will save you, B. Your effort. To get to the water and drink it, or see the water itself. Now, this example can help us understand Paul's message in Romans chapters 4 through 7 about how faith, works, and grace relate to the doctrine of justification. Now, it's important for us to understand what justification means. Justification is being forgiven or pardoned from a punishment for sin. Essentially, it means being made right with God, where you're no longer declared guilty. So, going back to our example of the man or woman who is in the desert, which option could represent the idea that we can be saved by our works? The answer is our effort to get to the water and drink it. Now, in Romans chapter 4, verses 2-5, through 5, notice the Joseph Smith translation of those verses. There Paul teaches the Romans that even Abraham was not saved or justified or made righteous because of his own works or obedience to the law, but he was made righteous because of his faith. So as we dive into Romans, Paul helps us understand and begin to see more clearly why we absolutely need Jesus Christ. Early saints, particularly early Jewish saints, were becoming caught up in the former requirements of the law of Moses, a law they and their ancestors had lived for thousands of years. Their problem, which can be compared to individuals even in the church today, was that they began to think that their obedience to God's commandments, their good deeds, their tithing, their ministering, their repentance, or their faithful obedience to any of the other commandments, is what would save them in the kingdom of heaven. But in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul reminds us that there is none righteous, no, not one. And then in verse 23, he said, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let me add here that you and I don't need to feel discouraged when we sense that our spiritual progress sometimes seems slow or when we continue to see weakness in our character. All of us have this natural Fallen mortal tendency to sin and make mistakes. We have weakness. But as the prophet Moroni wrote in the book of Ether, in the book of Mormon, God has given us weakness to make us humble, and he's willing to help us make those weaknesses strong. So if we go to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, we notice that our works cannot and will not make us righteous or innocent or clean. Our sins cannot be covered. By our own efforts or work. But notice in verses 21 and 22, who is righteous? It is God. It is His righteousness where our hope lies. In the Joseph Smith translation for chapter 3, verse 24, you'll notice that it says, Therefore, being justified or pardoned only by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, no matter how much good we do, we cannot earn forgiveness. We can't earn salvation. We have sinned and we fall short of salvation. And it is only by God's grace, His divine strength and enabling power that come through Jesus Christ's redemption that we are saved. So, let's say that you or I are dealing with a particular trial or challenge. Most likely, that is already true. What is an example of what you or I might do if we did not understand this principle that we're saved by Christ? Your answer might be something similar to this Well, we would try to solve the problem on our own. And how often do we actually attempt that? And what is the outcome if we try to rely on our own efforts? Now compare that to what someone might do if they understood the principle that we are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ because of His efforts? And how would our outcome be different than if we just relied on our own efforts? This conversation applies very specifically to overcoming bad habits or addictions. How many people do you know who have tried to overcome But because they trusted more in their own efforts to solve the problem, they failed, and they kept falling into the same bad habit. So, how do you repent? You may have heard of the five R's of repentance. Recognition, remorse, restitution, reformation, and resolution. A number of years ago, Elder David A. Bednar was the president of BYU-Idaho, He told a story of talking to a bishop on campus one day. A young man had committed a sexual sin with his girlfriend on Friday night and had visited with this bishop that next Sunday to confess. In their meeting, the young man expressed relief that he was able to get that off his chest. He told the bishop that he had repented and that confessing to the bishop that day was the last thing on his list to repent. Now remember, the transgression was committed on Friday night, and here he is Sunday morning confessing, and it's the last thing he said he needed to do to repent. Elder Bednar said, we too often see repentance as a checklist of what we must do to be forgiven, and we forget the most important R of repentance, the Redeemer. It is not our efforts or our repentance that will save us, make us clean, bring us forgiveness, or change us. So, how are we forgiven? How are we made righteous? How are we justified? In chapter 4, verses 5-7, through Paul said, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. In other words, it is to individuals who have faith in God for their salvation who will be made righteous, not those who think their own works or action will save them. Faith on Jesus Christ, and that always includes repentance, allows Jesus' atonement to cover our sins, thus allowing us to be declared righteous through his merits. In verse 7, he said, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Again, we cannot cover our own sins. We might attempt to do so. We might try to hide our sins to cover them, but that doesn't work. The only covering that truly gets rid of our sins is the covering called in Hebrew, kafar, which means to cover, or in English, it also means atonement. Jesus Christ is the only one who can truly cover our sins. At the end of verse 11 in chapter 4, it states that His righteousness is then imputed or transferred to us. So, it is His righteousness that makes us righteous, and we receive that righteousness through our faith, and faith is action, our faith in Jesus Christ, our willingness to follow Him. Our works, our faith, our action simply allows His grace to declare us righteous and free from sin. But it is His grace that saves us. The Joseph Smith translation of verse 16 states that we are justified, or made righteous, by faith and works through grace. So, going back to our example of the man or woman in the desert, you can see that it is the water that will save him, but he can only reach that water when he believes the water will save him and he puts forth the effort to get to the water. So, we are forgiven, we're made righteous by our faith and works through God's grace. In Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 11, Paul taught much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the Atonement. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf once taught, Salvation cannot be bought with the currency of obedience. It is purchased by the blood of the Son of God. Grace is a gift of God. And our desire to be obedient to each of God's commandments is the reaching out of our mortal hand to receive this sacred gift from our Heavenly Father. That's from April 2015 General Conference. Then we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, "...for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners," that's talking about the fall, "...so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous." And that, of course, is a reference to Jesus Christ's atonement. Jesus also gives us the strength we need to obtain His grace. We can be blessed by His grace before, during, and after we exercise faith in Him and perform good works. So how can the Savior's grace help us exercise faith in Him and do good works? And what are some works we can do to show our faith in Christ and then be justified through His grace? Those questions can be some great ones to ask your family or even a class or your friends as you're discussing these chapters. Now as we move into the final chapter of this week's study, Romans chapter 6, imagine someone you know knowingly breaking God's commandments, and they attempt to justify their choices by saying that they'll eventually repent. Maybe they use the phrase, I'm just stepping away from the church for a while, or I need a break from the church. They plan in their mind to perhaps repent later, but for now, they like to do whatever they want to do. What is the problem with this attitude? Some people knowingly break God's commandments, planning to repent later, such as before they go to the temple or serve a mission. As you studied Romans chapter 6, You might look for reasons why this attitude denotes a grave misunderstanding of the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of His grace and how we receive forgiveness. Having just made the point in chapter 5 of Romans that we are saved through grace from God, Paul begins chapter 6 with the question, So, if we're saved by grace, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, should we just keep doing whatever we want and then let God's grace save us? And then he said in verse 2, God forbid. In other words, absolutely not. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In verse 2 there, he asks a question that may not make sense to some. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In asking that question, he's trying to help teach something about becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain this in verses three and four. Don't you know that any of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So, he's trying to explain to these church members the doctrine so that they don't think that they can just live however they want to live and expect to be forgiven and made whole simply by the grace of God. In verse 4, he explains this symbol, this object lesson of baptism. He said, therefore, when we're baptized, we are buried with Christ into His death. Like that as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. In other words, if we get baptized, we're showing God that we're willing to leave the old part of us behind, buried unto death, and come forth in a newness of life. You see, to help us understand and remember how and by whom we're made righteous, God has designed the ordinances of His priesthood. Remember, the original name of that priesthood is the Holy Priesthood after the order of the Son of God. And the ordinances of that priesthood are filled with object lessons and symbols that point to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ, to the source of our salvation. But it's not the ordinance, it's not the symbols or emblems that bring righteousness to us. It is Jesus Christ that does that. And He does it through the Holy Ghost. And He does it only as we bind ourselves to Him by sacred covenant and by faithfully keeping those covenants. And as we walk God's covenant path and make covenants through sacred ordinances, Paul explains in Romans 6.6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Remember, Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane symbolically took inside himself the dregs of a bitter cup. That bitter cup, or at least its contents, were symbols of our sins. He took them inside Himself, in His body, and then He let that body die on a tree or on the cross, letting our sins die with Him. So, Paul is pointing back to that rich symbolic imagery in verse 6 when he said, our old man, when we're baptized, the old part of ourselves, that natural part that wanted to sin, who we used to be, is crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be destroyed, so that our sins will be destroyed, that henceforth, going forward, we will not sin anymore. In verse 9, he said that death hath no more dominion over Christ. Well, the crucifying of Christ is a symbol to us of the crucifying of the sins within us. There are two beautiful hymns in our hymn book that help illustrate these truths. The first is hymn 100, Nearer My God to Thee. In the first verse of this hymn, it states, Nearer my God to Thee, nearer to Thee, even though it be a cross that raiseth me. In other words, each of us, you and I, all of us, if we are to be true disciples of Christ, if we're to be made one with Him, then eventually, one day, figuratively, we will each have to crucify that natural man or woman inside of us. We must let them die and walk in newness of life. Walk by new rules, toward a new end, from new principles, make a new choice choosing new paths to walk in, new leaders to walk after, new companions to walk with. Old things should pass away, and all things in our life should become new. We are not what we were, and we don't do what we did. The surest evidence of our spiritual life is dedicating ourselves to God. Now, I mentioned there's another hymn. But before I tell you which hymn that is, let's read one more verse from chapter 6. Paul taught that if we sin, we become servants to our sins. If we are true disciples of Christ, He can make us righteous or justified, meaning He can bring us back to a point where we're no longer guilty. But Paul goes further. He then teaches that not only will God make us clean again, but He will make us holy. Let me illustrate for a second. If we sin, we now know how to repent. We know that it involves Jesus Christ. We need to ask for His power to help change us, to help make us clean. It's not our efforts, but it's His that's going to make us righteous. Now, we can do that, and we understand that now because of the scripture highlight and these teachings from Paul. But Once our repentance is through, once we have turned to Christ and we've received His power to become clean, what stops us from committing the same sin again? You see, there's really two parts to sin. There's the stain, or as Elder Bednar called it, the taint of sin, and then there's what Elder Bednar calls the tyranny of sin. We have to overcome both. When we repent, as we receive Jesus Christ's power to cleanse us, we can be made clean. In other words, we overcome the taint of sin. But we're still susceptible to committing the same sin again. That is, until we have been made holy, until we've changed, until that change of heart has wrought such a difference inside of us that we no longer desire to sin. And that change comes as we are made holy. In chapter 6 of Romans, verse 19, Paul said, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness, there's justification, unto holiness. That means Unto being sanctified. Be made righteous, not just so that you can become clean, but be made righteous so that you can then become sanctified or changed. Now for that second hymn. It's hymn number 111, Rock of Ages. Of course, the rock of ages is Jesus Christ, our eternal foundation. Now, in order to understand the first verse of this song, we have to understand what the word cleft means. If a rock is cleft, it means the rock has been split or broken. We know that Jesus Christ was broken for us. And the words to the hymn Rock of Ages illustrate someone who understands that it is through and in Jesus Christ, not our own efforts, that we will eventually be made whole and holy. The hymn states, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, Let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. I love the end of that verse. Be a double cure to me. Save me both from the taint of sin and from its tyranny. Save me from the wrath of God, the punishments of my sin, but also... Make me pure, make me holy, help me never want to sin again. It goes on to say, Not the labors of my hands can fill all thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, When I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. These powerful truths we've discussed in this scripture highlight will continue into the next scripture highlight as we finish the book of Romans and discuss how through ordinances and covenants we can, because of Jesus Christ and through his power, be reborn and completely changed forever. Now, as you go about the remainder of your week, remember that you're free to choose sin and everlasting death or eternal life through Jesus Christ. But also remember, as Paul wrapped up Romans chapter 6, now being made free from sin and becoming servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This has been a message of Hope in Christ.